This is Andre Shudan of The Crew Process and the Eaglesoft Field Guide on Facebook. You are listening to Hashtag POD, Podcast of Dentistry with Dr. Panks. This podcast is sponsored by Rocketbook. I hate wasting paper. If I could, I would not use pen and paper at all. But I love the feeling of writing and drawing with pen on a nice paper. Somehow, I feel I'm connected to it, but always hated the fact that I cannot bring my drawings or ideas to the digital world. Now, Rocketbook is the exact amalgamation of both the physical and the virtual world. Hear this. You can draw or write on the Rocketbook, take a picture with the Rocketbook app, and magically it cleans the picture and sends it to Google Drive, Evernote, Dropbox, OneDrive, OneNote, Slack, Box, iCloud, iMessage, or even classic email. Just configure the symbols once, and that's it. You snap a picture, and your drawings or plans or notes are right in the Drive or Dropbox, or anything that you choose to send it to. Once you're done, simply use a moist towel, yes, a moist paper towel, and you can erase it, only to be used again. Simply saving paper. Simply head over to podcastsofthenistry.com slash rocketbooks. Today's guest at hashtag POD, Podcasts of Dentistry, is an orthodontist, a photographer, a filmmaker, and a TED speaker. His name is Dr. Phil Borges. He's produced a movie called Crazy Vice at crazyvicefilm.com. He's one of those accomplished and humble TED speakers who's given three TED Talks which has been viewed more than 4 million times. Now you'll wonder why do we have a filmmaker being interviewed at hashtag POD? Well, he was an orthodontist too and for those who are interested, we also talked about bonding, bonding brackets and its story of origin. If you're hoping to learn about bonding brackets, then this podcast is not for you. This podcast is more than that. He shares his journey from being an orthodontist to photography to filmmaking. He talks about his experience meeting George Lucas from Star Wars Sega and how he was instrumental for him to turn into filmmaking. This podcast is also not about filmmaking and how to be a filmmaker, but it's a journey of exploration and adventure about ourselves. He shares his experience meeting oracles, shamans, kutans, and even Dalai Lama. He talks about the road to enlightenment. We talked about a lot of stuff, to be honest, a lot of dense stuff about his movie and topics like spirituality, psychosis, depression, happiness, psilocybin, and whatnot. You will have to be open-minded and you'll be in a whole different world, a world we don't know about. We also discussed other wide range of topics like motivation, meaning and purpose of life, and not to mention Tim Ferriss inspired questions. This is indeed a dense podcast and there is so much to learn from the whole conversation that you would want to listen to few parts of the podcast over and over again. So without further ado, Dr. Phil Borges. Let me start with simple thing here. Um, so many people look around, so many people want to be uh, an orthodontist. And you are one, right? 
I was one, yes. Well, technically you still are, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. right? Um, well, I don't practice. So. Exactly. When did you graduate uh, from ortho? Uh, I graduated in 1969 from the University of California Med Center in San Francisco. And um, I graduated in a special program hmm. that ended with the class after mine. Okay. And it was a program where in our freshman year, uh, they chose four students out of the class to start specializing in orthodontics. Got it. So I did not go to graduate school mm -hmm. for my ortho degree. I finished in four years of dental school. Oh. So it was, it was a special program called Curriculum 2. Okay. And it had been going for several years, and it ended in our class. Got it. So. Got it. I, I, they took um, the top four students out of the class and, and essentially let them start specializing in, orthodon in orthodontics. And everybody wanted into the program just about, so there was a lot of competition getting in. But that's, that's how yeah. I got my orthodontic training. So what happened? Did you practice? Did you, did you even practice at all? Like yeah. Oh, yeah. I um, was it was during Vietnam. OK. And so the last thing you wanted after graduating is to set up a practice. You know how much that costs, you know. Right. It, and and find a location, set up a practice, take out all the loans and then possibly be drafted. Right. That was a possibility back then. Right, right. So um, we, um, our classmates, most of my classmates joined what they called the early commissioning program. Okay. When we were like sophomores in dental school. Right. So I joined the Air Force as a sophomore in dental school. Mm -hmm. And that uh, allowed me to, as soon as I graduate, um, as soon as I graduated, I went in to the Air Force and was obliged to serve for two years Okay, as an orthodontist. And uh, they sent me to Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. Okay. And I practiced there for two years. Hmm. So, and then what happened? What, what made you move, you know, out of orthodontics? to photography. Okay. Well, that's a longer story. So after I got out of the Air Force, I came back to my hometown, um, the San Francisco Bay Area. Sure. And started looking around for a place to set up practice. And it was, it was even hard back then getting mm -hmm. a start. So I ended up um, associating with somebody Mm -hmm. in in the area yeah. and then i found another practice where i started associating uh and bill coon was the um orthodontist that was working at the time and had a, a huge practice and i started working with him and i got to liking him so much i decided to go into partnership with him right 
And, and I stayed in that practice for another 16 years. Oh, wow. So I practiced total of 18 years. I was 45 when I decided to quit. Um, so how did I make that decision? That's what you're asking? That's, yeah. I mean, it's for me to think about I spent 16 or 18 years of my life, not to mention four years of my schools, schooling, right? And whatever, whatever. And patience and re relationships. And it's so hard for me to leave everything. I don't know if it was subtle, if it, if it was cold turkey. But so I want to understand what made you at that situation, you know, uh, leave everything and going to photography. Right, right. So let me back up a little bit and tell you how I fell in love with photography. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> which, sure. which actually happened while I was in dental school. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> I'm in dental school living in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. That's where the school was. Right. And the Haight-Ashbury was the epicenter of the hippie movement in the mid 60s Got it. okay and so it was just the center of um, a cultural revolution if you would yeah uh if you will uh people coming from all over the united states young people wanting to explore a whole new way of life and they were coming to the Haight ashbury district mm -hmm. and there was this huge um renaissance and music going on I, I mean at the Fillmore auditorium after school we'd go down to the to the Fillmore and there would be Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin or the Doors or all the band big bands of the time playing yeah and and it was really the beginning of the concert yeah. um as we know it now yeah. And so it was just a real exciting time. Okay. But anyway, I was I took out a job as a, um, a work study program and I was working for a psychologist who was trying to figure out if free needles. There was a big hepatitis outbreak yeah. in the hate. Okay. If they gave out free needles, would this help that hepatitis outbreak with the people use them. Mm -hmm. And so I was given the job of going down on the street and interviewing all the hippies and asking them about which drugs they're using, which drugs they're shooting and how they're doing it and to get an idea so she could write her paper. I'm very good at going out and meeting people. And, and so she wasn't as good at that. So I yeah. was being paid to do this. And I loved the job because I got to find out what was going on. Right. But anyway, I would pick the most outrageous people, looking people to interview. Ah. And soon I wanted to start doing portraits of them. So I started not only doing an interview, but I asked if I could do a portrait of them at the same time. So and I just fell in love with photography i i bought a uh, took out a student loan and bought a camera uh a super 8 camera started filming what was going on down there 
and in the in Central, I mean, in um, Golden Gate Park, and all these free concerts happening. Yeah. And so I just kind of fell in love with photography. Actually, made a film that um, sort of was a parody of the whole dental school experience that they played at the school for years afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so um, that was my first love of photography. And I actually thought at that time, well, I'm, I'm a junior in, by this time, I'm a junior in dental school, a year away from graduating. And I actually gave it a thought of, you know, junking it all and going into photography at that time. Okay. And, okay. and, but you know, I had student loans. You probably know this story. I had student loans. Um, at the time I, um, had a wife and child, uh, and it was, um, just more than I could even think about doing right. something that crazy. Mm -hmm. But I knew my heart was in this, this art form of photography. Okay. And, uh, so long story short, I graduate, I come back to after the air force, I come back to the Bay area and I get started again. And, uh, you know, starting a practice, I wasn't starting one, but starting in a very busy practice. Right. I, um, that was, that was all consuming and I, and I was having a good time. I had a couple of friends that I graduated with okay. that were very inventive and I was collaborating with them and we actually started some of the first direct bonding of brackets to the teeth. Oh, okay. Oh, it, when the way I was trained, the way you banded a case is you separated all the teeth with either wires that you tightened or rubber bands. Yeah. And then you slip these bands that went all the way around the teeth that held the bracket. Well, that was not only painful, it took a long time to do. Okay. It, it um, made the case worse if there was crowding because you increased all the crowding. Yeah. And so this one friend, this one classmate of mine, his name is Bill Barnard. He was, uh, he was an engineer from Stanford before he even went to dental school. Wow. And, okay. <laughs> and so he started cutting the brackets off these bands and putting a wire mesh on the back because um, the ability to bond a plastic coating to the enamel had just been discovered, the acid etch Etch. technique. Yeah. And it had just been discovered. So he figured if he could take and get the plastic to stick to the bracket. Right. Some way. So he started cutting the bands apart and put in a wire mesh on the back of the bracket mm -hmm. and, and sticking them on the teeth. Okay. And, and I thought, God, how ingenious is that? <laughs> if it would stay, you know? And so we started working on it together and I, built this contraption with his cheek expander that just pulled the cheeks away. And so I was in this practice that was very busy. My partner was older. He wasn't as good at putting on bands. And so I was given that duty. 
Right. You banged up the cases. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll have the, all the fun straightening the teeth. So, you know, I was getting blisters on my fingers from banding teeth. And so I really became motivated to find a better way of doing it. And I started working with Bill. And um, pretty soon we were direct bonding these homemade brackets. And it wasn't long after that that the big companies, the, the big band companies, right. um, started getting in on the act. And they started making brackets, especially with a backing that could accept the the plastic and stick to the tooth and uh but during that time it was so creative and we were coming up with these ideas and unfortunately we didn't we didn't patent any of our ideas (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway um it was it was just the fun of doing it and and all of a sudden, a case that would take me three months to band, I could band in 45 minutes. Wow. That is interesting. And, and so that was, that was huge in this big practice we were in. Um, but anyway, I, after you know that initial part of doing the creative aspects of things, then this practice became more of an assembly line. You know, yeah, we had yeah. several chairs working with several assistants and and uh, unfortunately, I really like to talk with people and it <laughs> isn't, you know, as a dentist, it isn't the best place to talk to somebody and have a conversation. Yep. They've got things in their mouth and you've got your <clears throat> fingers in their mouth and you're trying to talk. No, it doesn't work. Right. Um and the little bit of time, especially if you're in this real fast-moving practice where you're seeing a lot of patients in a day. Uh, so I got um, tired of that. I got tired of, you know, it's good money, obviously, but I really got tired of that um, just repetitive um, assembly line work. But were you not excited that you did you were doing something innovative by sticking the bond and the band at that stage uh or were you were you were like were you, did you get bored of that also you know after such a, after doing it so much well yeah i mean once we had once we had created the technique and and um and then it was sort of a routine way to do it right. once we once we had developed the way of doing it and then it was routine. Yeah. Then it became more assembly line. Were you married still at that time? Um, uh, no. Okay. Okay. So, um, anyway, I, even eight years before I did quit, I was thinking about quitting and I was really investigating other ways of satisfying my creative nature. Hmm. And I could have started another practice, um, uh, which would have engaged me, but I didn't want to do that because um, I knew that eventually I would be back doing the routine. Right. And and as you know, there's routine in everything you do, but um, I wanted something that expressed my vision that I, the stuff that I was having fun with, with 
photography while I was in dental school. So um, I, I also had the good fortune one night of going out to dinner with George Lucas, um, really? the guy who did Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because one of my good friends in dental school was married to um, a woman who was a, a cousin of his wife, Marsha Lucas. Wow. And um, so we went out to dinner together, uh, and he had just finished this movie called American Graffiti, which became fairly popular, and he had gotten enough money to start this other thing that he really wanted to do mm -hmm. star, Wars. star Wars. And I didn't, he didn't even know the name of it at the time. And he was just talking about filming in the desert somewhere. And I was just listening to what he was doing. I thought, yeah, that sounds pretty nice. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Anyway, but it was years after. And so I always thought, well, I'll fill I'll fire up my, old cameras, which um, disappeared after I graduated from dental school. First yeah. of all, when I graduated from dental school, I immediately hit the road, hitchhiked to New York, caught a flight to Luxembourg, and started hitchhiking all over Europe just to take a break. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So we're going to talk about the hitchhike thing, too. Uh, <laughs> but let's keep it aside. Let's keep that aside. So, so uh, and then... So why your cameras were still packed and then you took it out uh, because you met George Lucas, uh, uh, in a way, yeah. because yeah. he well, kind of... No, I didn't take him out at that time. It was just like, it just planted the seed in my head. Okay. Well, here's somebody making a living, doing what he loves, and it's it's right up the alley of things I was loving, yeah. getting to love anyway. And, yeah. and, uh, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then, and then what was the turning point when you said, okay, that's it. I'm, that's it. I'm done with orthodontist. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it was 18 years after, but what was the, the moment in that time when you really, really felt, uh, that okay, uh, I'm done. I, I gotta, I gotta do uh, follow my passion of photography. Yeah. yeah, well, it actually came in stages. So about ten years into it, I, I, I reached that point, saying, "Yeah, I've got to make a change." And so I brought somebody else into the practice, uh, somebody who had just graduated. He was actually he actually went the same school I did. He was a year behind me and I brought him in to take my place. Okay. And so he was going to take my place and continue practicing with our older partner, Bill. Dr. Bill. Yeah. And, um, so he came into the practice and I started phasing out, started cutting down my days. I didn't know what I was going to do at the time. I just knew I needed a break to think about things. And I got a place up in Montana. I bought a little ranch. <laughs> okay. Now, where are you right now? Uh, I'm practicing in the Bay area. Oh, you're in uh, San. Oh, San where, where am I right now? Right. Where right I, now. 
Yeah. I, I live in Seattle. Seattle. Oh, Seattle. Okay. So, so you were, so you bought a small place in Montana and then what? And I decided to take a summer off and go up there and just live for the summer. And, and as, as I say, just sort of think about things. And, um, it was a beautiful valley and it just pristine. I grew up on a ranch, by the way. So okay. this sort of, sort of was, uh, hearkening back to a very wonderful time in my childhood. And I, um, bought this little place from a couple in their nineties. It was a beautiful little, it was only six acres, but it was, um, this beautiful farmhouse with wonderful gardens and a view of the whole valley with snow-capped mountains. And it just, it was one of those idyllic settings. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't know what I was going to do back there. And, but I made some friends and got into the local community. And, but I, I, I like, I'm, I like to do carpentry as well. So okay. I remodeled the house a bit and that sort of occupied me for the summer. And, uh, but the, the assistants gave me a call and said, you know, really you are leaving too early. You need to come back. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I, after that summer went back and started working again and rented out my little farmhouse and um i tried to make it go again and you know it um i felt an obligation to it you know i uh, to all the patients that i somewhat knew you don't know anybody re real deeply but right, right. you know um some people i got to know more but um uh so I, I continued a second try. Okay. And it, after about seven more years, uh -huh. I said, uh, I've got to take a break and I want to take a sabbatical. And I talked it over with my partners and my older partner at that point. Well, let's see, how did this unfold? Um, and then I said, okay, just, I'll take seven weeks off. I'm going to go to New Zealand. I'm going to take my bike. I, I'm a big bike rider. Okay. I'm going to take my bike and a camera, and that's it. And I'll just go there and and get a perspective on what I want to do. Okay. And that's what I did. So I went down there for seven weeks. By the way, at this point, I um, <laughs> this is a very interesting time of my life. My girlfriend had gotten pregnant. Uh-huh. So it was like, all of a sudden, am I going to get in this other relationship now, long-term relationship with a child and, um, and stay as an orthodontist? And all of a sudden, I felt the walls kind of crushing Closing in it. on Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that now I have another pressure, right. not only taking care of myself, taking care of a couple other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh. So that's when I decided to take this seven weeks and clear my head. Anyway, I came back. I fell in love with taking pictures while I was down there. I fell in love with it again. And I, 
I, I should back up and say this will be a little out of order. That's okay. But I, um, when my son was being born, that's when I really took out my camera and started filming again. I recorded his birth. Wow. And uh, I hadn't really even touched a camera that much since I'd graduated. Uh, because I was so involved with other things. And uh, mm -hmm. so I recorded his birth, and I had nowhere to develop the film. I shot it in black and white film. It's back in the days of film. Right. And so I went to a local community college to see if I could use their dark room to develop the film. And they said, only if you take a class here. Ooh, and, okay. and I begrudgingly took a class <laughs> and I got this instructor. His name is Ron Zach, Ron Zach. Uh, an incredible photographer, by the way. Okay. And he totally turned me on to the art and philosophy of photography. Mm. And within a year and a half of starting his class, I had decided to leave orthodontics for photography. Now I had something to go to other than, you know, I'm just wanting to explore something else. I now had a sort of a target. And then I took that trip to New Zealand with a camera and, and just to clear my head to see if I really would leave <laughs> so ron right. zach was in montana then no uh, no he was in the bay area oh so okay. I, that whole scene of me um, oh, that was in when your son was born and you took yeah, pictures so and, I, okay that makes sense okay so right. the big thing for me to go to new zealand was one am i going to settle down with julie my present wife by yes. the way yes yes and am i going to leave orthodontics wow and so I came back from that trip and I didn't decide it while I was there. Uh, I came back. I just had fun riding around in this beautiful landscape doing my photography. Yeah. And I came back and I decided, yes, I'm going to leave the practice. And yeah, I'm going to settle down with, with Julie and, and, and Dax, my son. Okay. And, um, and I did it. And so when I, so I had, before I left on this trip, I had brought in another person to replace me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. in the meantime, our older partner had retired. retired. Yeah. And yeah. this was at least a two person practice. Sure. And so, um, I brought somebody in to replace me and the person I brought in the first time, Jim, um, it would be his partner and we all agreed. And I started introducing Joe, the new partner to the patients yeah. and uh, started that transition. Um, and I knew I was going to cut back, but the big question was, am I just going to cut back to a day or two a week and then have all the rest of the time for photography? Yeah. Or am I going to go for it 100% and just dive in? Right. And um, so the trip to New Zealand was to kind of decide that. 
and i think um ron zack also kind of uh you know made it made it easier for you to kind of uh, yeah yeah well ron zack turned me on to the love of it and and at a deeper level than i had known it before right. and um and so yeah okay and so once i decided to do it i just started making the plans to do it brought joe in more and told him i was leaving and negotiated our exchange in terms of um how he would um, buy into my part of the practice yeah and i um decided to move to seattle from the bay area because oh. it was much cheaper to live up here at that time right right it, it isn't anymore but it was back then <laughs> and uh I came up here and declared myself a photographer and and started looking for work okay. looking for commercial jobs to support right. myself. Now I have a wife and child yeah. or I have a girlfriend and child anyway yeah. at that point. <clears throat> and um so you want me to go on with that? Well, <laughs> no, uh no, it's it, it is interesting. It is interesting. uh that's why i didn't want to stop you but uh, going back a little bit here um do you remember your uh meeting with uh, george lucas yeah uh i'm sure people uh would like to know you know the star wars guy you know how how yeah. was your how was your meeting with him and then i'm going to come back to your photography before we forget that part too yeah 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 um so it was george his wife marsha who um actually did the editing of Star Wars. She was a brilliant editor. Okay. Um, and um there's a whole story about that that I learned later. Okay. From my friend um Karen Pruka who was her cousin. Okay. And that's how we ended up We were all living in Marin at that time. George right. was living in Marin. I lived in Marin County. Mhm. Um and we went to this little mexican place just to have dinner and he was fairly quiet okay. he wasn't uh, um that's you know he asked me to remember a lot about it um i just remember him talking about i liked his film american graffiti and he was talking about doing this sort of war of the worlds type movie and he was filming in the desert somewhere and i was thinking to myself i wonder if this one will catch on you know i, I didn't think it would you know it's like <laughs> but uh he he didn't talk that much about it he just uh, i just remember him being somewhat quiet okay um uh nice guy but again his wife was more outgoing than he was okay yeah um Marsha. Yeah. Um but I just I don't remember too much about it other That's than okay. that and uh he um and Mason my friend that was married to Karen the, the cousin yeah. of Marsha. Yeah. <laughs> uh went over to his house. I didn't go over to his house. Yeah. And and said, "Yeah, he's got this amazing 1920s jukebox and he, he named a bunch of stuff he had in yeah, his house. Yeah, yeah. Kind of cool. Got it. Um right. but yeah, that was that's about all I I remember, but I do remember saying 
you know, I could see doing something like that. <laughs> so, so do you think you were, um, in a way, attracted the way George Lucas was living his dream? Uh, you know, maybe subconsciously, if not, uh, if not really. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he was doing something that is very. Um, there's no prescribed path, you know, like we went to the school, you're on a conveyor belt, you do what they tell you to do and you come out the end and you, and pretty well, you're guaranteed of getting a job and, right. and, and working yeah. uh, in photography or it's raw capitalism, you know, you're, anybody can pick up a camera, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, of course you have to have skills. Sure. But it's 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 what you produce that gets you the job. It isn't your degree or piece of paper on right. the wall. Right, right. It's still more creative. It still has yeah. more creative. What you can see, what you can uh, uh, yeah. shoot, and then what you can present. They are all three different things. I think yeah. you're right. You're right. So, um, and you declared yourself as a photographer as you said when you moved on to moved into seattle yeah uh how hard was uh for people to accept you as a photographer when you were a dentist yeah <laughs> you know? yeah yeah like, i know it so you know i worked with you know we had about seven or eight assistance in the practice so i went from hiring assistants to being an assistant ah, right, <laughs> to learn right. the craft yeah. yes yes so it's, it's a bit of an ego reduction but i i was so in love with it i didn't mind that part of it um and one of the things i did when i came up here i looked at all the photographers in town and i picked out the ones whose work i liked and i gave them all a call and said, do you guys ever meet and share your work and talk about your ideas? You know, this is what Ron Zach taught me a lot uh, in terms of how to, you know, engage with others that are involved in the work and, and discuss your ideas, how stimulating that was. So I actually, as a newbie here, formed a support group. Okay. And first of all, they said, who are you? Where, where? And I said, oh, I'm new to the field. <laughs> sure. And some, one person didn't want to join because of that. Yeah. <laughs> but the other said, okay, let's do it. We had always, always had wanted to get together, but we'd never thought of a way of doing it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we started that and I got very involved in the photography community I became president of the ASMP, American Association of Media Photographers, and um, tried to get commercial work. Okay. But again, no one knew me, so I wasn't getting any work. Hmm. And the beauty of that, though, um, I learned later, was it forced me to do my own work without having somebody telling me what they wanted. And um, that way I could develop my own style, my own voice in the, in the field. And so all I had was doing my own work and meeting with other photographers. And it took me about 
almost four years, four okay. years before I got a job. Hmm. From 87 to about 92, uh, to 91, yeah. And um, so I was, I was nervous during that time. I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, were you, did, did you start to, you know, doubt your uh, decision at that moment within those four years? Uh, from 87 to 91 when you did not get a good job i mean i'm sure you had some savings from your yeah uh, from your work before uh, but and then maybe you were getting some more money from them whatever but yeah. for four years uh, you worked so hard did you ever think that you were not up to the level or up to the mark and you took a wrong decision to change your uh, change your profession you know, I didn't think in terms of I made a bad decision leaving because I knew my soul needed a change. Okay. <laughs> my, I needed I needed something to revitalize my, um, I Have, could say creative juices, but uh, to revitalize my passion. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. um, about what I was doing. And I knew... I moved up to Seattle also to burn the bridges. I didn't have a license to practice up here. Right, right. I didn't want to be tempted to go back and get a job working for somebody uh, as an associate in their practice. That would have been even worse, you know. And in those four years, um, I'm sure, you know, your wife was with you, but did she have, did, how did, 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 did you have, any uh, conflict? Hey, we were doing better in, I don't know, San Francisco. Now we in a small town, small house. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you face that kind of, and if you did, uh, I'm sorry if it's too private, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, as I said, I just, yeah, go ahead. You, you mean pressure from my family? It's still my girlfriend, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, she, she, she didn't live with me as a rich orthodontist. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this was all just being with me and her new son. And yes. so, no, yeah. that, there was okay. no pressure like that. Great. She supported me in every way she could um, sure. and sure. still does. Uh, so that wasn't an issue. Everybody asked me that. What did your wife say? God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't have that pressure at all. So now let's fast forward a little bit. So you got some your first job, and you know, uh, and then uh, it took you four years. But in the meanwhile, you also developed your own style of what you wanted to, you know, um, photograph or you know your voice, as you said. Um, where is that coming from? Where is that voice coming from? In the sense, I'm trying to ask is, why were you leaning towards going to Tibet or Dharamsala, India? Yeah, or, yeah, you know, yeah. And uh, Ecuador, Amazon, and you know, so on. Where is that uh, coming from? And Okay. You know, um, that's a long story too. Oh yeah. <laughs> so lucky this is long form. Yeah, it is long form. Don't worry about it. somebody. <laughs> you know, somebody gets bored, they can obviously shut it off. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
anyway, I finally started getting work. And um, to do that, you had to put an ad in a book that went around to graphic designers and art directors around the country and in Europe. Okay. And you just took a selection of your photographs and put them in the book. Right. And, and I had developed all these, I was having fun, you know, coming up with new ideas on the way to make images look different. And I really loved portraiture. I really loved, um, that part of photography. Right. And so I started shooting with infrared film, using it as portrait, uh, using it as uh, a portrait film. Yeah. And it gave a very interesting glow. And I decided to do a whole series on African-Americans uh, uh, that I met up here in Seattle and and put out a, um, a series that eventually ended up in a gallery up here um, called African-American Beauty. And it just, uh, with these, uh, the images, I shot it on 70 millimeter infrared film, which was used by the Department of Defense uh-huh. for seeing hot spots and, and for locating marijuana fields, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> in aerial photography. But anyway, this film I really loved, and it was very hard to work with, and so no one else knew really how to do it the way I was doing it. And I was toning my photographs a certain way that gave them this very unique look. And I put those in this book and, and the first year I still didn't get any jobs. And, um, it was the second year, the first year I had just nothing but photographers calling me, asking me how I did what I did. Okay. And, but no jobs. And the second year I started getting jobs Hmm. and, and, and all of a sudden I was getting a lot of work. Sure. And, uh, I remember I was getting annual reports, album covers. And one of the jobs I got was a very lucrative job was romance novel covers. Okay. Okay. And I did about, Oh, I don't know how many, uh, maybe uh, 50 of them. Okay. Before I finally, and they were very lucrative to do. I could do them very, I got to where I could do them very easily, very fast. And it became another assembly line. (laughs) And, and I had to ask myself, did I leave orthodontics for this assembly line? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Even though both were very lucrative. Yeah. Um, And I went to a party one night and I met a Tibetan a woman, young woman, who had started a campaign here in Seattle to make people more aware about what was happening in Tibet politically. Right, right, right. And so I, with the Chinese takeover of Tibet, and I um, listened to her and I said, you know, I want to go over there and do this story in Mm. my own way. And we started talking and I told her what I was into. She knew my work. She had seen, I had, by that time I'd have a couple of gallery shows here in Seattle. And, uh, so we decided to pair up together and do this. She would, she had no money to support me, but she could hook me up with interpreters and Dharamsala. Yeah. 
where she suggested I start. She said, I wouldn't go to Tibet right off the bat, go to Dharamsala. And anyway, as a guide, I started working. I went over there mm. and spent five weeks doing portraits of a lot of the refugees coming out of Tibet. Yeah. Uh, escaping from Tibet and um, met the Dalai Lama at that time. Most importantly, I met the Oracle of Tibet, the Nechung Oracle, which was a young monk at the time, 30 years old, who I was invited to watch go into trance yeah. and channel the spirit entity of the Nechung Oracle. Um, and then I got to interview him after that. Hmm. And, and that's when I first learned that these visionaries and healers in the developing world, so many of them were identified in their youth by having what we might call a psychotic break from reality. Yeah. They were hearing voices or seeing visions, um, having personality changes. They were very frightened. They didn't know what was happening to them. Many mm -hmm. thought they were dying. Yeah. And, and so, um, that became the seeds of what I did 25 years later, the film I released um, eight years ago. Crazy Vice. So, yeah. I mean, the film I started eight years ago and released uh, two and a half years ago. Tell, you know, tell us, tell us more about this specific uh, Nochang, uh, if I hope I'm pronouncing correct, Nechang. Uh, Nechang Oracle. Yes, Nechang Oracle. Okay, um, the Nechung Oracle is a protector spirit of the Tibetan people. Hmm. That's what the Tibetans believe. Okay. They believe of this spirit protector. Okay. And this spirit protector can be brought into um, our reality through a person known as a Kutin. Okay. And a Kutin is a human being who has the ability to go into a trance-like state mm. and have this spirit take over their body and speak through them. I guess that'd be the best. We would call it channeling. Right. Okay. So um, I met the Kutin. Okay. And... And he, he lived in this monastery, a very small monastery, right next to the Dalai Lama's residence in Dharamsala. Mm, okay. And that's where I went to watch him go into trance. Okay. And I was invited by a friend of mine that was doing an article um, for a London newspaper mm. on the Dalai Lama. Mm. And he had been invited, and he invited me to go along with him. Got it. So, you, you're a man, uh, you know, uh, or at least your initial training was, you know, a science guy, you know, a math guy, you know, uh, doing ortho, mechanics, engineering. Did you believe when you, you know, saw an oracle like that who's, who was in trance and channeling the energy of nature at that time? Yeah. So... Um, Okay, this will be another little long story. That's okay. That's okay. That's <laughs> so okay. I was raised a Mormon. 
Okay. In okay. the Mormon church. Yeah. And um, after my father died, which happened when I was seven, my mom became very religious and and she was born a Mormon. And so she became very much into the religion. And I was going to church nine times a week. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Totally immersed in the Mormon church. Wow. I actually went to Brigham Young University after I graduated from high school, a Mormon college in Utah. Okay. And after one year of it, I said, I was 17 years old, going on 18. Um, I can't believe this anymore, the dogma. And I quit Brigham Young and started going to Berkeley and transferred to Berkeley. Okay. Totally, totally different atmosphere. Sure, sure. <laughs> In terms of that. Yeah. And so I became, I went from being this kind of deeply immersed in a religion to becoming an atheist. And, um, and so when I was in dental school, uh, a couple of things happened. Hmm. One, I started um, experimenting with marijuana a bit, and then uh, a little bit with like mescaline and LSD, but not that much like some people were really taking it a lot. I only took it a couple of times, but it opened me up in a way I knew there was a lot more going on than I knew with my rational mind. Right, right. And then um, one night my roommate um, wanted to go down and see this psychic in the city. And I went down to to visit this woman. Oops. Um, let me shut this off. Um, I went down to visit um, this woman by the name of Madame Rousseau. So I went down to visit this psychic um, with my friend. And it was in San Francisco. And she was in her living room. And there were about 12 people there. And we all, when we entered, they gave us an envelope with a piece of paper and we were to write down our questions and seal the envelope and then put them in this basket. Okay. And I did that. And I thought, you know, this was just a joke for me to go right. down there. Yeah. And um, so I, I wrote down some things like, um, uh, what is... I'm a student. What am I a student of? How old am I? You know, these very basic questions. Sure. And definite answers. And, um, and so she was up on this, this kind of raised platform, very heavy set woman with a big picture of Jesus behind her. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, the whole scene was kind of funny. And but all, everybody in the audience are very serious and listening to her, and she's talking to them, and mm. and and she like contacts spirits that would tell her about the person, and you know. So I'm being entertained by this. Anyway, she gets to my envelope, and the only reason I knew it was mine, she just picked it up and she just said, "You know, this person's testing me." Oh, oh, <laughs> and I, you know. There's a lot of people here with very serious questions that they're very concerned about. I wish you wouldn't waste their time and mine and just put the envelope down and went on to the next one. 
Oh, okay. So um, that kind of caught my attention. And so I went back a couple of times and she started answering things that um, I, I had no idea how she would know. Okay. And so that opened me up a little bit. So to say when I saw the Kutin go into trance and start talking in a very strange voice and all the monks writing everything down, mm. I, you know, I was open to it. I, you know, I, I didn't believe it, but I was saying, you know, this, there could be something here. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I slowly opened <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And and now I've talked to enough people that I'm, I'm not only open to the idea, I know something is, is, there. is, is, is there. Yeah. So you were religious. Or I'm a lot more sure. Let's put it that way. Makes sense. So you were religious and then you became atheist. Then you saw Madame Russo. And then what are you now? <laughs> uh, what am i now who are you that's a real deep one well that would take me all night yeah i know but let's say uh if you want to uh give a couple of uh, words you know uh, I, yeah where my beliefs are now which change <laughs> with time um i believe that thinking of myself as Phil Borges, the sack of skin that <laughs> has done this and that over the years, mm -hmm. um, is a narrative that creates the illusion of somebody that's separate from the whole. And I think I live in that illusion of being separate from everything else around me. Hmm. Um, instead of, uh, I'm just part of this consciousness that I'm experiencing or is being experienced. Okay. There's no, I am, <laughs> I got you. uh, but I, I live in that illusion. There are people that I have been interviewing that, um, that have broken through that illusion and it's been frightening to them when they lose their ego boundaries and lose their ego sense of self. Hmm. And these are people that some of them were um, put on medications. Um, most of them were told they had this or that disorder. Yeah. Usually in the range of psychosis, bipolar is very popular now, schizoaffective, schizophrenia. Um, and, I think they touch into a place of an ego dissolution or a jarring of their ego or their identity. They're put into what we used to call an identity crisis mm. through either something that's happened in their childhood or something that's happening in their current life, um, a loss of something that they base their identity on. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I got it. Am I answering your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, so as I, you I, said, I, go ahead, go ahead. I think I, I am living in this illusion of being separate because, um, 
I haven't had one of those experiences. Sure. Um, I touched on it a little bit with the psychedelics, but I haven't really been experimenting with them now in my older years. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about it, though. Um, I'm interviewing a lot of neuroscientists and people that are doing the new research. There's a whole renaissance in research around psychedelics and what they do to um, create uh, the experiences they create yeah. in the brain. Yeah, I think uh, uh, maybe you're hinting towards uh, psilocybin, right? Yeah, uh, psilocybin. They're mostly working with psilocybin yeah. and, and LSD. Hmm. The, the, the neuroscientists that I've interviewed anyway. Right, right, right. So <clears throat> um, I think uh, John Hopkins uh, and uh, you know, Tim Ferriss is doing a lot of research himself by sponsoring uh, a big chunk of uh, research at uh, John Hopkins uh, yeah. about uh, psilocybin. Yeah. And, no. and they're studying deep meditators, by the way, as well, hmm. like Tibetan monks who have meditated for thousands of hours. Right. And, uh, and Judson Brewer was doing a lot of that work. And it turns out that meditation, psychedelics, and a psychosis have many similarities in the effects that they produce. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you meditate? Yes. What is your ritual like? What is your meditation ritual like? Uh, you know, I've been for years meditating, just following my breath, um, 20 minutes a morning. Okay. Uh, lately, I've been doing a little more long-form guided meditations. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, I... Think of the chakra centers and mm -hmm. and infuse them with the higher vibration, yeah, which yeah. means love, gratitude, and joy, <laughs> yeah, versus um, regret, anger, and you know all the lower vibration, yeah, the energies. So I do that and. Um, and more or less staying in the present moment as po much as possible, not only during meditation while I'm sitting, but all during the day. I, my mind can just take off and I just go into daydreams. Just, <laughs> just I, I have a strong tendency for that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Coming out of the present moment. Right. <clears throat> Was your meeting with uh, Dalai Lama in Dharamsala uh, any anything important happened at that time or was it just mm. like um like nothing happened you just saw he saw you and that's it you know oh uh, yeah uh, well um yeah i didn't get any big buzz out of being <laughs> in his presence yeah <laughs> uh but i did get a lot of admiration for him hmm. you know i'm usually suspicious of popular leaders because you know you never know what they're really like but one on one occasion i got to stand right next to him while he was seeing a whole group of new arrivals okay. from tibet mm -hmm. come in yeah like all these people that and by the way to them he's a total god yeah you know and and there were a couple of women that fainted at his feet as they were coming through this line, it was almost like a reception line. He was greeting them as they 
came in. Yeah. And, um, but he would take all the time in the world to be with them and, mm. and hold their hand and talk to them and make sure they have a place to stay that night. And, and, you know, his handlers just want to keep this crowd moving. Right, he right, right. Other, other appointments. And I just saw how genuine it was in that situation. But it really got me and it really changed the, my whole project that I was doing that I, I set over, I set myself up to go over there and do a human rights story. Right. Uh-huh. But so I spent the five weeks interviewing a lot of these refugees. Mm. Why are you leaving Tibet? What happened to you in Tibet? Mm. So many of them had been thrown in jail for protesting the occupation of the country, yeah. tortured while they were in jail. One guy had all his teeth kicked out. And I mean, it was just all these horrible stories of family members being killed. And so there was a little sign that went up in Dharamsala on a bulletin board said the Dalai Lama is going to give a public address. Okay. So I went to that and um, there was this huge crowd um, out in front of this little stage where he sat and, and there was a FM radio that a, a couple of us Westerners could go and listen to. The movie star um, Richard Gere was one of the, you know, there were about 10 of us in this little place listening uh-huh. to this um, uh, FM radio. And he told the crowd, I mean, it was a long, you know, about a half an hour talk. But during that talk, he told all these people out there, and I was looking out into the crowd. I was kind of where I could look into the crowd and then look over to the side to see the Dalai Lama. And I saw a lot of the people I interviewed out there. Hmm. And he, he said to the crowd, I'll never forget it. He said, treat your enemies as if they were precious jewels mm-hmm. because it's your enemies, not your friends, but your enemies that are going to take you to a place of enlightenment <laughs> or something to that effect. Right, They're right. going to teach you what you need to learn to become enlightened. They're going to show you your, in my words, they're going to show you your triggers and what, uh, and what takes you out of your sense of being one and thinking that they're different, they're the other, and, and, uh, so, um, uh, that's when I decided I'd build this whole book that I was planning on doing an exhibition yeah. around compassion. Hmm. And here was a leader, you know, most leaders come to power on anger and frustration and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. This is the leader just going in the opposite direction, taking people away from the anger and away from the victimhood and into their own process. Right. I thought, man, this guy is really for real. Hmm. And um, so when I finally got to be with him one-on-one and doing his portrait, um, you know, it was, it was like four in the afternoon, and I had talked his, uh, his handlers, his secretary, to let me take his picture up on his rooftop. Okay. 
And that was a big feat in itself. They wanted me to do it in you know, on his front porch, and I wanted the mountains in the back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they they agreed, and I was up there on the rooftop waiting for him. And he was, as always, busy meeting people and helping people. And so he was a, a couple hours late. And the sun was going down, and I was thinking, man, I'm going to miss this shot. Sure. Because yeah. the light is changing, and I'm using a strobe light, and I have to balance ambient light with the strobe, and I have to shoot a Polaroid to get that balance, and that balance is changing every 10 <laughs> minutes. So I'm all nervous when he shows up. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't know how to greet him. I held out my hand to shake his hand, and he just kind of avoided my hands and took his fingers around my sides jabbed them into my sides tickled me and just <laughs> laughed out loud <laughs> and so yeah he had his way of putting me at ease he saw how you know tense i was yeah because that, that was my only chance to get his photo and i needed it for the ex the exhibition i was sure. doing no but um yeah so that's my experience of the dalai lama interesting interesting so uh after talking to so many uh, followers, uh, uh, you must have heard their their definitions of uh, road to enlightenment, right? Uh, what did you figure out, or what was what would you say their definition might be for the road oh, to road to en you, enlightenment? You mean the Tibetans? Yes, or whoever you interviewed and, you know, uh, because that would be your first-hand experience rather than generically people who are talking. Um, or well, do you, or you know, do you in, have talking your own? To the, in talking to the Tibetans, you know, you meet, they're, they're, there's so much devotion in that culture to their practice. Hmm. Uh there are people that go into a cave for a couple of years to meditate. Right. Some going, I took a picture during that time of somebody that was going into a cave. He was 43 years old. Okay. He was going to, into a cave for the rest of his life to meditate. Wow. Wow. And I met people that were prostrating all the way to Lhasa from the far eastern part of Tibet. Um, like going 1,600 miles, like inchworms, you know, prostrations. Yes, you know what they yes, are? yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And uh, which would take them a year to get to the Jokong. And, you know, you touch your forehead to the ground. They had these big calluses on their forehead. So I'd ask, you know, a lot of these people, why? Why, why do you do why would you go into a cave for the rest of your life? Yeah. <clears throat> or why, you know, this prostration all the way to, you know, for a year. Mm -hmm. And the answer is to get over the enemies of enlightenment, which are self-grasping, self-cherishing. It all had to do with reducing self-importance in, in my mind. And, and so, um, I think th that would be the answer I came away with is, is getting over self-importance, whether you do it through service to others or 
going into a cave and meditating for years or whatever. Um, that's that's the, the, the goal of getting over that sense of illusionary self. Hmm. And that is hard. That is. Oh, yeah. That Especially is, in our culture, which is built around individualism. Capitalism. You know, we have, oh, we've got new iPhone 11, by the way. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, <clears throat> so photography was your passion. Uh, obviously, so Dalai Lama is a huge project, obviously. You know, um, in a sense, you were invited. And now, you and you continued doing the same thing you know you going you went to pakistan you went to ecuador what made you continue doing the same thing i mean i mean it's 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 hard out there i mean to relative sense of comfort what we have in seattle or san francisco or connecticut wherever but it's relatively hard uh yeah. and 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 i i was reading and listening to uh some place researching that you even took your son uh to i think pakistan right yeah. uh, when he was young so why go through such a uh, for the lack of better term hard life relatively <laughs> i i just loved um you know i did this all over the world mm-hmm. over the 25 year period um and it it largely came from my time in the ranch in Utah growing up did yeah. i talk to you about that just a little bit yeah. yeah yeah i did another podcast this morning and i i i went into detail about that but anyway just um being around people that live close to the land and uh that was um that was it brought me back to my childhood and i loved it i i loved going to these different places yeah it's hard you're sleeping in mud huts uh, or a tent mm-hmm. and um sometimes you're sleeping with 18 other people in the mud hut mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> people talking in their sleep or snoring and you know um no privacy <laughs> to speak sure. of which we're used to which yeah. they're not right um um but there is a joy also that i saw in in the people in these communities that we've lost in general mm. in general mm. um we are much more isolated from each other in general and that fascinated me um mm. i'd come back here and i'd really notice hey i don't know all my neighbors here they know everybody they know everybody and not only that they rely on them there's no old age homes or daycare centers or grocery <laughs> stores or lawyers to solve their arguments they have to depend on each other and their in their intimate relationships to take care of human needs mm-hmm. and uh and i think we have lost our ability to do that to a certain extent hmm. at a deep level. Sure. I mean there and I think that accounts for our rise of depression, anxiety which is increasing exponentially. Yeah. 
by the way, and it's now the number one cause of disability in the world. Yeah. Um, according to the World Health Organization. Sure. Uh, suicides up substantially, like 24% in 15 years. Yeah. I mean, we're in a crisis, really. And um, there's things we've forgotten about our human needs. And we've um, institutionalized taking care of those human needs when we need to do it person to person. Or we need to have those bonds with each other. So, and, uh, so how do you think uh, people can come out of this phase of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts? I mean, obviously, we, we saw the movie Crazy Vice. If, uh, for my audience who doesn't know, um, Dr. Phil Borges uh, uh, produced uh, a movie called Crazy Wise. Uh, it's called as crazyvicefilm.com. Um, and I watched it. I watched it. And But how how do you think depression, anxiety, suicides are going to come down? Um, what can we do? Uh, and we can, how can we learn from what you're doing? Yeah. And so how do we reform community? How do we start communing more with each other and relying on each other and 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 getting back to being with each other on a more um, intimate and reciprocal caring way in a reciprocal and caring way? And, you know, one of the disadvantages, uh, you know, just like I left religion, most People your age and, and the young people are leaving religion because, you know, it's a fairy. You think of the dogma behind it and you start thinking, yeah, it's a fairy tale, just like I left and became an atheist. But that was one of the places where we would commune. Right. And, and even though I didn't believe in the dogma, I could see the value in going to church and being with this certain group of people and they they knew my mother was a widow they would give me a job anytime i needed it they would we we took care of each other we called each other brother and sister it was brother <laughs> so and so sister so and so um but that's all gone away now so that's left our culture without um without really strong means of bonding in an intimate way. I think the stats are done by the Gallup poll. They asked this question three decades ago of American men, I believe the study was, who, who would you call on in a crisis? How many people do you have that you could call on if you were in crisis mode? And three decades ago, I think the answer was two or three people that they could name okay the most common answer right now is none wow over 50 percent say none hmm. um you know it it um we're connected like we've never been connected before but you know on the social media connection um you know with teenagers I just got back doing a film project with teenagers in Thailand. Okay. I just got I just got back last week from doing this and you know they started talking so the the 
the thing I wanted them to explore through interviews with each other, which we set up on film, yeah, is um, this was at an international school, by the way, okay. where there were kids from all over Asia, there were uh-huh. Chinese kids, Korean kids, um, Tibetan, um, some some Americans, but mostly Asian kids. Anyway, um, uh, what I, I said, what do you do um, for community? What do you do to express your authenticity? Because I think we need both of those for our good mental health. Hmm. We need to be authentic. We need to come from our emotions, know our emotions, and be able to express our emotions. Sure. We need community to do that with. We need to be bonded with other people where they can help us and take care of us and we can help them. Yeah. Those are human needs. Um, uh, and so I asked the kids to explore that. So they got into things like peer pressure and social media. Mm. And what they said about social media is, you know, um, you know, it used to be when you were bullied at school, you could go home at night and get away from it. Right. They said, now you're with it 24 seven. Right. It's happening online. And the other thing is, you know, I remember being in high school and thinking, God, wouldn't it be nice to be more popular and be more accepted <laughs> by the group here? Yeah. And I was, you know, I wasn't one of the most popular kids in high school by any means. <laughs> and um, so now they have Facebook. Yeah. And you so who has the most likes? Right. And what are they doing to get those likes? And what do you do if you post a picture and nobody likes it? Mm. Um, so they're constantly faced with this very statistically um, <laughs> reliable way to test their popularity, right? Sure, sure. I understand. And it puts pressure on them that, and they do things out of, not out of their authenticity, but out of what would get them liked online. Right. They'll put the pictures out there they think will get the most likes. Mm. It's not necessarily who they are. Right. So it's taking them away from their authenticity. It's um, the bullying becomes an issue in certain cases. So they had a lot of negative things to say about social media. They say also, you know, it isn't all negative. It's, you know, there's, it's nice to be able to connect with my mom and dad back in wherever yeah, and and uh, to keep track of people at a distance mm. that we know and love, but there's this other dark side, and and it's being borne out. The amount of depression and suicidal thoughts completely are pretty closely correlates with the hours spent on social media. No, for teenagers. Right, right, right. Uh- so let's talk about our age. You know, obviously, you know, it becomes our responsibility to take care of our own kids, you know, uh, to teach them that, okay, you know, you should be authentic. You should re- present what your real thoughts are. You know, if you have some bad thoughts or whatever, come to mama, come to daddy, come, you know, come to your parents and family to talk about it, you know, be open about yeah. it. But yeah. how how do we handle you know, people of, you know, my age, you know, 
who are somehow depressed for whatever f reasons we don't know why they are you know maybe they had a bad experience like i know i was watching your movie adam he yeah. he had a bad experience by his grandfather you know yeah um and how do we handle you know how can we bring them out so i am not god's grace i'm not depressed i'm happy to be with people around you know uh and but how do i and i don't understand depression then because i'm not part of it right, right. uh so uh, as and i caught that line in in the movie people don't understand your your thoughts uh when they are feeling these voices in the head or depression or the suicidal thoughts how do you bring such people of our age or our generation you know out of this and you know live their life the way they should and and not really depend on those uh tens of medications that you need to take yeah 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 it's difficult um now the most common thing is we all want a quick fix right we want to <laughs> take a pill and have it be done with right and this is not amenable to a quick fix usually yeah. um uh, what i have gathered by all the interviews and and watching the people go through it in my movie right uh in the movie crazy wise yeah um is somehow if it's childhood there's a lot of childhood trauma that drives us and 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 um and that we're unaware of because it's in our subconscious right so finding ways to get in touch with some of that in the movie you noticed adam came to the realization that his grandfather had molested him yeah. during of a vipassana meditation retreat wow going yeah. into deep meditation and vipassana for those who don't know yeah 10 days meditation 10 hours a day silent silent meditation it's hard i looked it up before uh because i think tim ferris been to vipassana multiple times and i could not take 10 days off my work and yeah. they're booked all the way up till april or may already for 2020 by the way so yeah well there's 400 vipassana centers around the world right so um but yeah it's it's um and and they're free you go there you can't even pay the first time then they'll ask you to donate if you've enjoyed your experience right but anyway um so that's one way of getting to that deeper sense of deeper emotional um issues okay um there's breath work holistic holotropic breath work which is another thing that you, you could have your listeners look up sure um but uh it's basically getting in touch with your feelings and experiencing them that's what it seems like uh that the people who have successfully done it like akaya in our film mm, yeah uh, she completely transformed her life mm -hmm. but she had to go through this initiation 
where she was put in touch with all her feelings. And as she said, I hurt, I cried, and I was being pushed. And it was very uncomfortable, but I had to stop numbing those feelings with the medications. I had to start being with them and to, to where they diffused. She yeah. diffused those emotions that were inside of her. And, um, and uh, that, that to me is the way out of it. Uh, mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, right, right, I'm not, right. I'm not talking from experience cause I haven't had this experience, but I'm talking from an, a journalist, an interviewer who's interviewed yeah. many people who have, and, and that's, that's one of the things getting to know yourself and your emotional self. And, um, and there's other ways besides Vipassana and breath work. There's, there's multiple, um, therapies out there, right? But, um, all called now alternative therapies because they're alternative to just the straight medication, right? Medication is like a band aid, really. I mean, I'm not down on medications because there are times when you definitely need those. Neat. And yeah. uh, everybody we interviewed said, I'm glad I have those. Every yeah. therapist we interviewed said, I'm glad I have those in my toolbox. Right. But it's like a cast for your arm. Right. Eventually, you want to be able to take that off and mm -hmm. be able to handle your emotional life without them. Sure. Sure. So basically, um, I think I liked um, the last um, three to five minutes of the movie. I love that part where uh, one of the researchers was talking about three circles, mind, body, and spirit, which comes up towards the end. And uh, they are talking about, uh, you know, mindfulness, the purpose of your life, which self-agency in the part of mind, uh, you know, a body, you know, it's like housing that some it's like your house, like your exercise, you have the nutrition, you have to have a good sleep, you have a, should have a place to go to so that you can, you know, revive back, you know, and obviously spiritual, you know, so that you have connection either to nature, uh, you know, spirituality, and not to mention the community. I love that last gist of mm -hmm. three to five minutes of the movie and loved it. And uh, the last three to five minutes, I was almost going to uh, shut off the movie and I saw Adam, actually singing the last song you know yeah, when yeah. <laughs> his, rap was, song. his rap song actually it was pretty good i was yeah, like I, I i wish i would have put that more in the middle of the movie right right uh, i think yeah. it was pretty good but i think uh, with this podcast people would go and stay for another two minutes and see if adam rapping there so that was that was really nice i love that <laughs> yeah uh, now so, yeah so, yeah in terms of depression and the body yes exercise <laughs> yeah I mean, the first thing i'd ask somebody are you exercising regularly yeah that's one of the surest ways to help yes i'm um, getting the right nutrition of course getting enough sleep so body is very very important then you can start dealing with all the mental uh, emotional issues right like um you know any current traumas happening in your life that you know about or then the past traumas that you don't know about. How would you, how do you think, uh, like people go through, people go through, you know, 
50% of the marriages end up in divorce right uh would do you have any i don't say do you have any insights i should say uh into how does that impact a kid you know um oh, oh yeah uh, uh, because he or she the kid basically is not with the parent for you know the way they the way she or he was you know when they were younger you know maybe they didn't remember a lot but they were younger they were kids 2 3 4 5 years whatever um but i think they my understanding is they still miss the other parent right uh, yeah. do, do you think they could it could impact them in 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 ways that we cannot even measure or oh yeah or they are because i talked to one of my friend and he was like oh no kids are very resilient you know you're you know mm-hmm. yeah. but do you think it impacts them when they don't see the other parent and only see one uh, oh yeah yeah no there's no doubt losing a parent well i lost a father yeah, sure. seven so yeah. uh, and that deeply impacted me uh-huh. and I wouldn't know how deep it was without the people that were around me at the time telling me later yeah. that I, at, like my teachers um told my mom that in school I was just staring out the window for a full year. Oh wow. I was I was just totally in another world. I wasn't present. Yeah. Um and during that time I almost died myself of double pneumonia. Huh. Um and so yeah deeply impacts and not only i lost my parent to um a lung cancer but if you lose a parent um to divorce it's usually preceded by a lot of friction in the household and a lot of tension and bad feelings and that does a number on anybody right. that's forming their personality um so Yeah. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I I think childhood trauma has been way underrated as to how important that is in in um our lives uh, sure. as adults. Yeah. Yeah. Um so uh you you've seen and talked and you know uh, to so many different kind of people and they in a way it's all gloomy in a way it's all sad right you know you're talking about whether it's adam or akaya or um any of those people you talk to right whether it was in tibet but it's all gloomy it's all sad what i'm trying to ask is how do you not get affected or do you uh get affected by uh such negative experiences even though you're just interviewing them and you're not you know you're only mm-hmm. involved uh how do i say mentally and you're not right, not right. not not with the heart what uh, but it's hard not to get involved either <laughs> you know we all are human beings yeah yeah, um, yeah yeah how do you handle you know all those negativities uh the trauma and the bad news and mm-hmm. you know you yourself personally You know, um there's there's good and bad in what I'm doing these interviews. There's it's not all just woe is me coming from the people I interview. Um 
So it makes it kind of fascinating. And it's my curiosity that really keeps me I'm passionate about doing it. And, mm. and I don't, yeah, there's times when I, yeah, oh, geez, you know, I just think, well, how did you put up with that? How did you survive that? Mm. Uh, um, and But that becomes a fascination. How did you do it? Uh, and how are you handling it now? And um, so I don't come away with a lot of heaviness, to tell you the truth. And I always felt bad about that, but that's just the way I am. Okay. Uh, um, I, I have, you know, in terms of, you know, stepping in when things get bad. I, you know, the part of the movie where Adam gets beat up. Mm -hmm. And almost killed and gets yeah. his teeth kicked out yeah. by a gang. Yeah. Um, so he's over in Hawaii, homeless, sleeping on the beach. Beach, yeah. And um, he, uh, this would take a little bit too long to talk about, but I'll try and make it short. He goes into a grocery store in a little town in Maui and ask if he could have their day-old sandwiches that they just throw in the garbage can. And the owner of the store said, no, you can't. Wow. So he asks the girl at the register. She goes up to ask the owner upstairs, and she comes down and says, sorry, you can't. Um, so Adam, that night, climbs over a fence, gets into the garbage can, pulls out the sack of day-old sandwiches, climbs back over the fence and takes him to his friends out on the beach. Well, I'm sure there was a video camera because the place, the thing was lit. And um, the owner saw this and the owner, I'm almost positive this isn't for sure, but this is what I believe happened. Okay. Sicked a gang on him because the next day Adam was, sitting on the road near that store and a person that was a member of the gang came by and said, where are you going today? And he said, I'm going down to little beach and we're going to play guitars. And he said, Oh, okay, great. I'd love to come along. I'll see you down there. So he, this guy shows up and he's got five or six of his friends. They're a gang, a local right. gang. Right. And they start playing music with him. And then all of a sudden turn on him and tried to kill him. Wow. I mean, literally throw a rock the size of his head down on his face, cracking his jaw right in half. And then they start kicking him, kicking out his back molars. Yeah. You know what? It, as a dentist, I know what it takes to knock a tooth out. Oh, yeah. It's not easy. So, so he's severely beaten up. And um, so he gives me, Adam gives me a call from the hospital that night. Hmm. Um, he's been wired up and he's, uh, um, they're about to release him. Okay. And so I call his oral surgeon, the guy that wired him up, yeah. wired his jaw together. Yeah. And I said, where, what type of treatment is he going to get mm. now? And he said, uh, we're done with him. He hasn't got any, you know, this sure. is all we can do. Yeah. And he says, it'd be best if he got back to Seattle. He said, right now we're letting him go. And he says, if they, if he goes back on the beach, this gang will come and kill him because he's a material witness to what happened. 
And um, so, you know, one of the rules as a documentary filmmaker is you don't get involved. You're, you're just a fly on the wall that's watching things unfold. Right. But, you know, to, to let Adam go out and get killed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I had to get involved and send a ticket over and get him flown back to Seattle. But um, it, things like that come up where you're, um, you know, you try to do something. You know, most of my work as a human rights photographer was trying to um, get help or to bring awareness into what was going on and to these in these communities, what they were struggling with just to survive hmm. and maintain their their culture. Right. Um, hmm. So, but, you know, in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, I think yeah, I felt bad for Adam, but. Yeah. Um, so you don't bring, like, you don't bring those emotions back home. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. I, you know, everybody asks me that, and I always feel bad because I say, oh, yeah, I was down for a week. No, I'm not. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, now, I think uh, <laughs> uh, there was, uh, let's try to change the tone a little bit here. Uh, you were at, <laughs> seems like, uh, uh, you did blend in one of the Rouhani tribes uh, when you were wearing uh, only an underwear. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that picture. Uh, do you want to share that story if you could? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that would be yeah, a little I, fun one. I was um, being the host for a series on Discovery Channel called Trailblazers, and they wanted to follow... Um, me into um, different places as I found the different shaman I was interviewing. Yeah. And one of them was in the Rwani tribe in Ecuador um, in the Amazon. Yeah. And so anyway, um, there's a crew of four people. There's a cameraman, a sound man, myself, and a director. Okay. And we're to go down into the Amazon and go into the Rwani tribe, kind of a remote um, tribe, and find uh, the Amazon. And I've done all the research, and and we're, we're going to go down in there. So I take off with the sound man on a flight, and the cameraman and the director were on another flight. <laughs> so we land in Quito, um, Ecuador, mm -hmm. and to wait for the the other two to come the next day. Yeah. And that night, all the volcanoes blow up in, in and around Quito oh, and wow. cover, cover the whole place with about six inches of ash. And so they couldn't come in. So we were stuck there another two days without anything to do or shoot. So we went up to a village up in the Andes and this wasn't a shaman. This was what they call a curandero. And we decided we would just film a curandero doing their work. Okay. And so we went to this town, Otavalo, and found this kid on the street and said, Who, do you go to any of the curanderos around here? And he said, yeah. I, I go to this guy by the name of David. 
And if we pay for a Olympia or a cleaning or one of their ceremonies, will, will you go and do it if we can film it? He said, sure, I'd okay. love to. <laughs> and so we, he takes us to his Curandero and we get there. Yeah. And, the, and this guy looks at both of us and he said, I can't do it on you, pointing to this kid we found. Okay. I need to do it on you. I mean, obviously, he knows I have the money, right? This <laughs> and so Cliff, the, the sound guy, had a camera. Yeah. And he said, yeah, let's go for it. And, and said, so, okay. So he took me through this ceremony, which had me stripped down to my underpants. <laughs> First, he beat me with stinging nettle. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. All over my body. Then he took mouthfuls of 100% alcohol. By the way, he sent us out to get the 100-proof alcohol. Ooh. And, or 200-proof, whatever it was. And, and he took that into his mouth, held a candle out in front of him, and blew the – you saw the flames yeah, yeah. coming all over me. Yeah. Burned all the hair off my arms. And <laughs> so anyway, all for the sake of this film <laughs> – <laughs> I became the guy getting this Olympia done. <laughs> that was that scene. That was okay. Any other any other uh, fun moments you had? Uh, any part of your travel? You know, whether it's uh, Tibet, Dharamsala, or whatever. oh god, there's a lot of fun moments. Um, mm -hmm. Funny. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, um, just you know human reactions that's what i that i always get a big kick out of you know some something happens and somebody's playing a joke on somebody else i mean the the humor that goes around i had one instance where i was in irian jaya which is the primitive side of papua new guinea it's the indonesian half and it's now known as west papa um and I had a guide and I would, we, we were going into the back country for, um, I think three weeks that time. And we had a couple of porters and anyway, we get up to the top of this hill. This is very remote, by the way, there's tribes in this part of the world that no one's ever contacted. Okay. And we get up to the top of this hill. We're looking down in this little kind of meadow and there's, Guys down there, naked. They are, they're all naked down there. They, they wear gourds on their penis, penis gourds, bones <laughs> coming out of their nose, piece, uh, all this um, pig grease all over them, yeah. um, feathers in their hair. Anyway, they're down there throwing spears at each other. Uh -oh. And I said, I said to my guide, Onus, I said, are we really going down there? <laughs> he said, don't worry about it. It's just like a football game. You know, they're just having some fun. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so I walked down there, and yeah. this guy comes up to me, one of them, and he just walks right up to me and looks yeah. at me and looks up and down at me, and I'm, you know, I'm wearing my clothes and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Here he is like he is, and he just starts laughing. Okay. <laughs> he bursts out laughing. And he's looking around at his friends and looking back at me and laughing more. So I'm looking at him and yeah. I start laughing. 
Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Look at you, man. You're laughing at me. And uh, we I'll never forget this. I caught we caught each other in the eye and there was something that recognition that happened between us. And it was like the way I described it is it's like I met somebody at a Halloween party that I hadn't seen for three or four years. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's you. It's you. Oh, I've seen you three years ago. I forgot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I've had some interesting experiences like that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, now, uh, <clears throat> um, you said uh, I think we were discussing that time initially, and uh, you said you have three more uh, TED talks. Uh, one of them is based on uh, is about spirituality. Am I right? Yeah. The, the other two are based on. Well, you see, these others were in the first TED talk I did on the main stage. Yeah. I, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I didn't even know what Ted was back sure, then. Sure, sure. They just invited me, and I went down. And it turns out, you know, Al Gore was presenting Inconvenient Truth at that TED Talk. It was Ooh. 19. I was 2006 or seven. Seven, I think, yeah. And so there were all these heavyweights speaking, and they wanted me to. And so I was totally intimidated. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Yeah, I had to speak between Tony Robbins, which is his motivational speaker, and I know Tony Robbins. Gore. Yeah, and um, but after that, and I spoke mainly about disappearing cultures, the yeah. fact that you know fifty percent of the um, kids okay. do not speak their language, uh, are, and so. Um, our cultural diversity is really going extinct, much like the species extinction, but nobody talks too much about it. Right. Anyway, that's what was that one was all about. But since that time, I, especially since I started getting more involved with shamanism and, and now crazy wise, the talks sort of start going in that direction. Right. And so, the one that has gotten the most attention is the one that I didn't title it. The the, the producers of the TED X, uh, the, the ones I've done since then, I haven't been the main TED stage. They've been um, TEDx talks. Mm-hmm. And um, the one that's gotten the most attention is it titled Psychosis and Spirituality. Okay. And, um, and I, and that really surprised me that that so many people would be interested in that subject. But mm. uh, there are quite a few. I think there's 2.6 million hits on that site wow. right now. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I'm sure people can uh, you know uh, certainly watch uh, the TED talks. I I'll put everything in the show notes for them to uh, go through all those TEDx talks also. <clears throat> Do you do you wanna uh, in very brief wanna explain how the two are related, like the psychosis and the spirituality, or they're not even related? Because mm. I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it. Yeah, no, I I definitely think they're related at this point. But first of all, I have to define the word spirituality. Great, because it means different things to different people. To me, I've come to define it as 
any process or anything that connects you to the whole, anything that connects you to other people, to your environment, to the universe, to that takes you away from uh, the illusion of self is a spiritual process. Okay. So growing up in the Mormon church, mm -hmm. calling each other brother and sister and um, communing like that, that's spiritual. The part of the church that said we are the only true church and the others have got are mistaken or not as good. That's not spiritual. Mm. Okay. The things that divide us aren't the things yeah, that yeah. unite us are. Okay? okay. Got it. That's the way I use the term spiritual. Okay. Um, and so many of the people I've talked to that have had these extraordinary experiences, typically called by the biomedical community psychosis okay. or bipolar or schizoaffective or schizophrenia. Yeah. So many of those experiences in the beginning, when you talked about talk to people that talked about what it was like in the very beginning mm -hmm. before they got frightened, um, if there was a stage before they got frightened, they talk about um, this sense of unity, sense of oneness that comes over them, feeling ultra connected, um, and. Uh, there's, they have they struggle with trying to explain it because there's no language for it. We haven't got a language for this, and so they use they say things like, "Oh, it." Um, I felt like I was everything, but yet I was nothing. Mm. Or um, my ego boundaries disappeared, and mm. you know who. If somebody says that to you, what does that feel like? I've never had my <laughs> ego boundaries disappear. <laughs> right, so I got really, you. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I hear that over and over again. Okay. And so, I mean, people call us all the time after they see this film hmm. and say, thank you so much for reframing what I went through because uh, I was told I was sick and, uh, you know, I could never recover and, hmm. and, uh, but I get to talk to these people about their initial experience and, and um, a lot of things like that happen. That sense of unity, their creativity goes up, their inhibitions go down. Wow. A lot of people get naked in public because of their inhibitions just disappear. Hmm. And that ends them up in jail. Um, their uh, sense of time gets totally warped. Uh, they could be somewhere for three minutes and they think they've been there for three days or three hours hmm. or vice versa. They could be somewhere all day and they think just three minutes went by. Okay. Uh, so time completely distorts. Uh, they get synchronicities, which is a term that Carl Jung, that psychologists use to explain these unusual coincidences like, you're thinking about your great aunt that you haven't thought about in two years. And 10 minutes later, the phone rings and there she is on the phone. Yeah. Um, those are called synchronicities. They start getting those back to back and that gets frightening. Um, so there's these interesting things that happen. Um, but that one, the, the main one I, I, I really mm. hear a lot is that sense of unity 
Um, and basically, that's what the Tibetans are trying to get to, right? In their in their practice, get over self cherishing, self um, grasping, um, get over that sense of self importance. Hmm. Uh, you know, basically, loosen those ego boundaries you have. Yeah. You're just a small speck in this whole universe, yeah. basically. Yeah, and you're part of it. <clears throat> you're just a small part of it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Now, the synchronicity is really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure people would say, hey, I was thinking about somebody and he or she called or they come in or, you know, to be honest, it has happened to me too. Like in the sense, uh, I was thinking, oh, I haven't seen that patient for a while. And then two days later, she has a broken tooth or pain or whatnot, and then yeah. she comes over. So, yeah. Uh, uh, tell me more about synchronicity. Uh, how is that different and how is that part of psychosis? Um, uh, and how is psychosis actually related to spirituality? You see what I'm saying? Uh, the psychosis, you gave me some basic key points. They had some extraordinary experiences. They're ultra connected, you know, synchronicity and, you know, uh, and loss of the, the time warpage right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How's that connected to uh, spirituality? Well, um, again, spirituality, as I've defined it, is just this um, feeling of ultra-connectedness. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, okay. So, by definition, it, that part is. Okay. But in terms of time, um, uh, and sense of self, yeah. uh, the Hindus, as you probably know, and the Buddhists uh, mm -hmm. um, believe the self is an illusion, right? Yeah. I mean, that isn't a new concept that's been around for thousands of years in these spiritual traditions. Um, time as a fixed entity, a our sense of linear time is also an illusion. And Einstein pointed that out with his theory of relativity. Yeah, and, yeah. and so um, uh, how it ties with spirituality, I, I, I you know, I, my, I know my definition is very limited, but that's the way I'm using it now. So no, that people, makes sense. I, no, I think that um, makes sense. But um, the time being... Um, you know, distorted in these experiences. Um, I think, you know, now I'm doing all these interviews with the neuroscientists that are involved in the renaissance of psychedelic research yeah. going on at Imperial College in London and at Johns Hopkins, Stanford, mm -hmm. um, all these UCLA, all these main colleges um, and universities. Uh I could get into this subject and that would take a whole lot of time. But, um, you know, what they're finding in terms of the the part of our brain, the they're using fMRI imaging, which tracks blood flow in the brain. So you can start to see when somebody has a certain abstract experience, what parts of the brain are talking to each other yeah, and nice. they call them networks. Yeah. And there's one that they're really getting a lot of attention called the default mode network. Uh, 
okay. that they believe is responsible for our sense of time and our sense of self, okay. uh, amongst other things. It does a lot of other things. But um, uh, so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just think that um, this whole realm of these extraordinary experiences whether they're come on spontaneously through a quote-unquote psychosis or they come on through taking a substance like psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca or if they're brought on by devotion to a practice like yoga or meditation um, um, I think there's a commonality in all those okay. that is spiritual hmm. in nature. Right. And that um, your sense of self kind of blends into the whole. Got it. Uh, <clears throat> could you give any uh, examples of uh, those extraordinary experiences which people have, uh, you know, seen and experienced uh, for the interviews that you've done? An example. <clears throat> so, An example of of the extraordinary experiences, you know, somebody might have experienced. Yeah. Did you know, like, well, yeah, let me just think of a one person. Um, okay. So I'll think of this, um, young woman by the name of Laura that has been diagnosed as bipolar. Okay. And she's in the process of trying to process of trying to, she goes into these states spontaneously. Okay. And she's in the process of trying to find out, number one, why, and number two, how she can ground herself if she starts going too far. Uh-huh. So, so she is a writer, and she's a jewelry maker. So she's kind of the writer artist. Okay. And she, um, when she first went into the, one of these states, she was 17 years old. She was just coming back from a, um, a trip to Honduras as an exchange student, I think. I forget. Okay. But anyway, she was down there with kids her age. She came back. She was also taking mefloquin, which is uh, for um, um, malaria. So it's yeah. uh, pr- okay. prophylactic for yeah. malaria. Chloroquine. Chloroquine. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's known for giving um sort of bad dreams and even um, some psychosis experiences. Oh, okay. But anyway, I think she was taking that. Uh, she was taking a, a medication. That's what I assumed it was. Hmm. Um, but uh, so she goes into her first break when she's flying home to meet her parents. Okay. And she goes into this sense of oneness and unity And it is the most beautiful thing she's ever experienced in her way of experiencing it. She says it was like somebody, it was like falling in love. Mm -hmm. It was like somebody turned up the volume on all my senses. Everything looked a little bit more bright. Um, The colors all looked brighter. The sounds were crisper. I could feel things at a level I'd never felt them before. Mm -hmm. And she said that, It was almost taking the feeling of falling in love, that euphoric feeling and turning up the volume on it way up. (laughs) That's the feeling she got at first. Hmm. 
And so she gets home and she said, I also had this feeling of interconnectedness and oneness. Like um, I, I knew this thing now and I had to go out and tell everybody because I, I needed to save the world, she said. Wow. Okay. So okay. she gets home and she starts talking to her parents and they get totally frightened because sure. she's gone, gone nuts in their mind. She's yeah. left this reality. Yeah. And quite frankly, that is what sends most people into psychosis, what we call psychosis, where it becomes very distressing and hurtful and, and difficult to deal with, is the reaction of the people around the person when they're trying to explain it. And it's especially the people that love them the most that get the most frightened. Right. The right. parents, the lovers, the partner, the best friends, they all, all of a sudden, whoa, this person is no longer in yeah, my reality. reality. Yeah, yeah. And you're losing the person, basically. <clears throat> and they get frightened. And so your senses are all tuned up. So you get frightened. Hmm. You pick up their fear. You can sense it. And like, Laura said, um, she said, um, I, was, I was trying to explain this to him, but no one was getting it. And, you know, I feel so connected, in it, but, yeah. you know, they're not getting it. Something's wrong. Got it. And that's when she started getting into the negative part of the whole experience. Mm. Now, Uh, we've been using this word sh uh, shamanism and uh, uh, healer. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, I think on, for the movie, they said uh, from the Zambu tribe, uh, Sakulan, the first yeah. lady, uh, she has become a respected healer and predictor. Uh, yeah. That was the word used. Now, mm -hmm. what does what does a healer mean? I mean, Do I go to them and they would heal me of my pain or my my fever or, you know? Uh, yeah. So what is healer actually would mean in this regard, uh, in this? Yeah. In, in, in Sakulan's case, she is a predictor. She's known for her visionary abilities, um, seeing things outside of time, so to speak. She can oh, yeah. see things that are going to happen in the future. Oh, wow. Um, uh, she's famous for that in the Samburu tribe. She's also a healer, but the healers, um, you know, I've thought about it often, uh, in terms of how, how they are effective in their work. And part of it, I'm sure is placebo. Okay. You know, they're known as being these powerful, um, people with extraordinary abilities. Yeah. And, and so when they, when somebody goes to them, um, and, and by the way, most of the people in these communities I visit are believing in spirit energy that's in everything. There's spirits in the mountains, there's spirits in the rivers and the forests. And they're in touch with ancestor spirits, their ancestors. And these shaman are like the Kutin in Tibet. Right. Are known for their ability to contact these spirit entities. 
Okay. And, and, and get information from them and bring that information on what it's going to take to heal um, back to the person. So that's kind of what they're doing. And, you know, they, they work in different ways. You know, there's a lot of them in the Philippines that used to, by sleight of hand, reach into somebody and have some, some blood hidden in their hand, pull out like they pulled out a tumor or something oh. and said, ah, oh, here's a tumor I just pulled out. <laughs> and, but that has an, an amazing placebo effect. And that's the thing that we tried to bring out in Crazy Wise about somebody in psychosis, especially most of these things happen before you're 24 years old. Yes, I, I remember. They happen yeah. to young people. Yeah. And so if you're 20 years old and you've gone off the rails because you've gotten a bad grade while you're away at college for the first time. Yeah. Or your girlfriend or boyfriend dumps you. Yeah. And you go into one of these states right. and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, uh, unfortunately, um, you've got a brain problem, a defective brain right now. You've got a chemical imbalance of your brain. Right. And we're going to rebalance it with these chemicals to try and get you back to normal. Hmm. And basically what they are is... Uh, Downers, they, they they tamp down your emotions if right. you're really right. hot. Right, right. And um, and but just the placebo effect of you know going to an expert who's mm. telling you you have this incurable defect in your brain that has to be managed with a lifetime of medications is in itself um, very self fulfilling and damaging. And what a, what a shaman kid is told when they go to their elders with that same issue hmm. is, you know, you've got a very special sensitivity. Hmm. Yeah, it's difficult, but you can learn to um, manage it. And we're going to give you somebody to help you do that, an older shaman that's been through it. Right. They know. They know about it. Uh -huh. And they're going to help you go through this and bring you through this initiation and, and, and once you do that, you're going to be valuable to us. Hmm. You know, we'll use, so the person is given a positive framework about what's going on and told that they're going to have meaning and purpose when they come out the other Got side. And that's quite the opposite of what we're giving people that go in for a diagnosis in our, in our culture. Yeah, but I th I was actually, um, you know, I was very proud that I was watching your movie. So I, you know, went on Twitter, you know, uh, went on Twitter and talking all about it, you know. Uh, or maybe I wanted some likes uh, myself, uh, just like on Facebook. So one of these guys come up to me and he tweeted to me, I forgot his name. And he said, oh, uh, doctors as if they know everything, you know. Uh, basically, he was referring to, um, you know, multi-drugs regimen, which is given to psychosis patients, um, uh, bipolar patients and so on. And, uh, and that got me thinking because I'm partly related to uh, a medical word, being a dentist. I yeah. realized uh, <clears throat> if I do something which is not the norm, 
which is against my training yeah. i am inviting uh trouble yeah. i'm inviting yeah, yeah, trouble yeah. for myself right so i i wanted him to understand you know and even the public to understand maybe the doctors understand uh what's going on but they are also uh shackled in a way to go yeah. through go with the norm so we, it has to come right from the top like from american medical medical associations or 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 a parallel association who deals with mental uh disorders that okay you know what uh there there are healers there is psychotherapy there is you know community involvement there this is all okay um for them for for a medical professional to actually do it for actually accept that kind of uh you know uh a new form of treatment for the lack of, lack of better term a new form of uh managing the case i should say right uh yeah. but i understand uh the patient's frustration and at the same time the doctor's frustration so it has yeah. to it has to come from all the way up top that's my opinion uh, well i i i'll have to differ with you okay fair <laughs> enough yeah sure. sure i think it has to come from the bottom okay um you know i think it's it, i i think the pressure now is coming from the bottom and i mean from the patients okay the patients who have had this experience and it hasn't worked for them and they're coming up and saying we need alternatives and and um the doctors as you say are shackled because they um for one thing insurance yeah you know you know if you want to <laughs> yeah. get paid yeah you're going to you're going to tow the company line and yeah. um and and the pharmaceutical industry and again i'm not against pharmaceuticals yeah they're being way overused right now especially in kids in my opinion right but um everybody i've talked to says i'm glad i have that in my toolbox right every every mental health worker um mental health professional right um but uh um I lost my train of thought. Well, What you were the, talking about that it has to oh, come from the, from the bottom. bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the people that are making the changes are people that have been, well, first of all, think of all the stigma there is around having a mental condition. Sure. Try to get a job, you know, and have that on your record. Try to get a partner. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh all that, you know, um mm -hmm. you're 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 crippled. You're you you've been hexed into being the second class citizen, so to sure. speak. Mm -hmm. And uh so these people have mainly because of the internet. Um they've found each other online and can join anonymously these discussion groups where they start sharing their ideas. I experienced this. Did you experience that? Yeah, I had something kind of like that. Yeah. And they're forming and and that's why there's a whole movement called the peer movement. Okay. Where they're pairing people in the middle of their um episode 
uh, are trying to deal with their episode with somebody who's already been through it and successfully navigated it. Right. Much like the older shaman coming down to the young, young person having the, the issues, issues and, and working with them. So um, these groups are forming in the grassroots level. And that's why I say, I think it's like politics. Mm. Do you think um, our president is going to all of a sudden wake up to <laughs> <laughs> what should be done? It's going to come from the base. It has to come from, you know, the politicians just answer what the people want, basically. They just want to stay in power. Right. What keeps them in power is their popularity with the populace. So it has to come from the base, I think. Yeah. And it's the same thing. But I'll tell you this. I, um, I, I showed the film at the American Psychiatric Association's annual convention in New York. Okay. Um, in 1918. I mean, 2018. Okay. And, um, uh, the discussion that went on after the film mm -hmm. lasted for three hours. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And, and, uh, but basically, and by the way, um, only 150 people came to this, see the film. Yeah. It was just one of the events in many, many events going on. Sure. And there were 13,000 people at this convention. Fair enough. So just a small, so they were self-selected. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, and, but the discussion was mainly about who's going to change the paradigm, who's right. responsible for changing this belief system Sure, that it's a chemical imbalance of the brain, which has never been proven. And they all know that. Okay. Um, uh, it's a convenient metaphor to tell a patient, Makes sense. but it, it isn't, it, there's no proof to it. Right. Uh, you don't get a blood test to see if you've got schizophrenia. You, yeah. you, it's all <clears throat> behavior and emotional um, symptoms. Sure. So, um, so there's no chemical imbalance that's been proven. It was the perfect time because we were, uh, I think, segueing into uh, Tim Ferriss' uh, questions. So these are the questions which Tim Ferriss asks himself to his own guests and I, yeah. I and I find them to be pretty valuable to know the guest, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Um, you can take as much time as you want. You can, you know, you know, breeze through or whatever you like. Okay. Yeah. So now, what is your morning ritual, if you have any? Yeah. When I'm home, I. I when I'm on the road, it all falls apart. <laughs> when I'm home, I usually wake up around six thirty seven. Yeah. Um, I get up and um, I meditate first. Okay. Uh, then I either do an hour of yoga or I ride my bike or I lift weights. Okay. Um, one of those three. Okay. And, um, and then I come back and eat breakfast okay. and I ride my, I live on an Island and I ride my bike around the Island. Okay. And so I come back and eat my breakfast. So that's my morning ritual. So, uh, how do you decide what you are going to do today? So meditation is every day I'm presuming, right? Yeah. 
Um, meditation is every day. Um, I've started when I do yoga, sometimes I'll skip my meditation because okay. I consider yoga a meditative practice. Got it. It's, it's, you know, it gets you to be in the present while you're thinking about the positions you're in. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, but I, I usually do meditation first or yoga first, and then I will either ride my bike or lift weights. Okay. Now, um, how do you do meditation? Be like, uh, do you use a guided meditation? Um, I, yeah, I either I usually do it to some sort of sounds. I have a, a this one where I just follow my breath, but it's a it's a a bong that goes every so it's like gets you down to like six breaths a minute. I think it is okay and. Um, that's where it's supposed to work on your coherence. Um, uh, so I use that, the gong. I also use um, uh, this, you know, Sam Harris. Yeah. He's uh, Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Like Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've used his before. I'm not using it right now. I'm using another guy. He's a chiropractor, Joe Dispenza. Oh. Um, this, the person lives downstairs from us here, um, <laughs> turned me on to him. Uh, and, uh, yet, um, I told you a little bit about it. One of them is blessings of the energy centers. Okay. He calls it. Okay. He starts with the root chakra, works all the way up and you're basically, um, uh, blessing those centers with higher vibrations of okay. thoughts of you know i think of it you know people i love and people that love me and the gratitude i have for the, the marvelous life i've had and right and am having yeah and just my sense of joy for being alive and i i infuse every center with that and and that's his meditation and i like that one you okay. know, I've only been doing it a month or two. Okay. Um, uh, so I experiment with different things in that yeah. realm. Sure. And and also try to stay more present during the day, during my um, yeah. times when I start wandering <laughs> a bit. And uh, regarding bike, uh, seems like you've been biking forever, right? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so... Do you have any advice for somebody uh, stupid like me who bought the bike but never rode? <clears throat> and for, uh, for me, bottom. I bought a small, uh, I bought a bike, but I couldn't ride a lot because I couldn't really enjoy biking. So, how would you recommend somebody oh. to start with biking? Oh, you know. Um, well, the reason I bike is because I don't want to blow out my knees. I'm 77 years old, so my um, knees are important to me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and my wife runs, okay. and she's run marathons, and and I'm yeah. not into running. I just don't want to beat myself up like that. So okay. biking. And I don't like swimming. You know, I don't like getting in a chlorinated pool. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, so um, – 
that leaves me with a low impact type of thing and biking, but I've, I've injured myself several times in biking. One, <laughs> I've chipped a bunch of teeth okay. and, and, um, I've got a shoulder that's broken because of it, but, uh, but at the same time, I still have my knees. <laughs> got it. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, active, you know, I'm, I'm very active actually. And, uh, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to be immobile. Well, you are 77 and you look pretty good for, for 77, you know. Um, what other uh, activities do you do uh, apart from these four, meditation, yoga? Yeah, in terms of staying in shape and, yeah. you know, discipline to take care of myself. That's it. Brushing okay. my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Eating, I, um, I'm, I'm not a vegan, but I'm close to it. You okay. know, I don't eat much meat. Okay. I do eat a lot of salmon. We yeah. live up in the Northwest, and okay. it's available to us. Yeah. Um, so I eat a pretty good diet. My wife's a great cook, and we eat really well. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that's it. Okay. I, I try to get good sleep. I'm not the best sleeper in the world. I wake up in the middle of the night. Okay. And sometimes have to read myself back to sleep. Yeah, me too. I think I was too excited today. And uh, usually I don't get up in the middle of the night. But 3.30, I got up. I was like, oh, I have an interview with Dr. Phil today. You know, I was like <laughs> probably way too excited. You know, some somebody of your caliber, you know, basically a TED speaker. This is the first time for my podcast, right? Oh, okay. So uh, it's a big deal for me. And thank you for coming, by the way. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Um, now, the most gifted book you have given, if any. The, the most gifted books. Any book have you gifted? That, that, that I gift. You know, um, I don't gift that many books. Okay. I, I tell people things I've read that really excite me. Okay. My, my last one was gifted to me. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, so that tells you a little bit about myself. Uh, it was a book called Metamodern. Metamodern, okay. Yeah, and it's it's all about the the phases of human evolution, like the um, pre-industrial um, times. The mm -hmm. um, it's called indigenous times. Then the pre-industrial agricultural period, then the modern period, then the postmodern period. Now we're starting to enter the metamodern. Ah, okay. And basically, it's a great book. I, I really opened me. I didn't even know what postmodern meant, really, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Yeah. And it's really just a deconstruction of the modern beliefs. Okay. And looking at them. Um, and and realizing that a lot of our beliefs are context contextual, it you know mm -hmm. your it depends on your the context of what your uh, what your culture says is determines your beliefs. But anyway, meta meta modern is going back and picking up the things that serve the human condition that we've sort of discarded. So it really appealed to me because. You know, our brains evolved over 200,000 years while we were hunter-gatherers, right. basically. Mm -hmm. And we lived that kind of lifestyle in these small, um, under 50 
um, inhabitant communities. Right, right, right. And and so we need our brains need that so that type of socialness. Sure. And that type of lifestyle that's heavily connected to nature, mm-hmm. that's um, very social and taking care of one another. Things I was talking about in the beginning. Right. Of the right. Project. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's metamodern, picking up on the things. And now we live in these nation states, and we got to learn how to adapt what our needs are to that kind of an environment. We can't go back living in 30-member yeah. groups out in the forest. Right, so right. what are the things that allowed us to build nation states? And that's um, common belief systems, hmm. common gods, so to speak. You right, know, right, We right. built one around an economy and money, mm-hmm. um, but is that all we need to take it to the next step, which is a global community that to solve the problems we have to solve, like globe, like climate change and terrorism and all those global issues? How are we going to build a belief system to bring us together at that level? So that's a book about that, and I really enjoyed it. So okay. I've recommended that a lot to people. Sure, sure. Good, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, any best purchase that you made between $100 to $300 that impacted your life in a positive way? $100 to $300. Well, yeah, I would say um, the devices that have helped me meditate. <laughs> okay, yeah. And and the just the the podcasts are the um, not like Sam Harris's piece and um, Joe Dispenza's and I forget the guy that gave me the the gong, uh-huh. um, but all those were under a hundred bucks. Sure, you know? sure, sure. And um, but I think in terms of impacting my life. Uh, I think those things have probably, at least from my perspective right now, um, changed things for the better for me and in, in the most, for bang for the buck, that probably did it the most. Sure. So <clears throat> when you think of a person being successful, who are the two people that come into your mind? Success- oh. Successful people, and they could be alive, they could be... Yeah, 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 they could yeah. could be dead. I mean, um, I know he had a lot of flaws, but uh, like we all do, but I, uh, the one person I really admired was John Lennon. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, just for speaking his truth and all the time in spite of consequences and and having that that talent uh, that musical talent sure and and lyrical talent right and um uh i you know (laughs) the dalai lama okay you know he has influenced me so much as a you know, just a person who um, is a, a leader and sticks to principle in spite of 
everything going on. I mean, he has to hold back the young people in Tibet. They want to riot. Yeah. So they've had it. Yeah. In fact, they um, essentially burned down Lhasa right before the Beijing Olympics. Mm. And because it's a Chinese city now. Yeah, Lhasa. yeah, yeah. And, um, and they've got spies in the monasteries and everything like that. So, and he, he threatened to quit unless they stopped taking that path. Wow. Um, and um, so they all pulled back. But, you know, he, he really um, sticks to principle. And I really admire that. And he is, he's admired by his people more than any politician we've ever had mm, right. <laughs> than we've ever <clears throat> admired, any leader or anything. And, and he isn't in it for becoming more popular or becoming more admired. He's, you know, he's, so anyway, yep. Dalai Lama. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> What do people never ask you that you wish they did? Oh, geez. These are hard questions. Um, Thank you, Tim Ferriss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what motivates you? Okay. They don't ask me what motivates me. Okay. Um, so now um, I should ask you. And, I've, and maybe it's because I've just started thinking about this. Um, not what I want to be. Okay. Not what I'm trying to accomplish. Not what I wish I could accomplish. Um, not, um, you know, how do I feel? I, it's... it's um, what motivates you? I, and I and the reason I say I wish they would, because that's a thing I'm starting to want to think about more and more. Okay. Because I know when I wanted to be an orthodontist, I knew what motivated me then. Mm -hmm. I wanted money. <laughs> I didn't know a thing about it. Right. Right. When I wanted um, to do something different, uh, especially photography, I wanted to be known for my work. Mm-hmm. And um and I, I got some of that. And I got and I got money because I grew up poor. And and now it's like, okay, what motivates me now? Because I'm I'm not motivated by those things anymore. Anymore. Right. <laughs> so what motivates me? And uh um and the best thing I can come up with nowadays is my curiosity. But nobody asked me about that. <laughs> and I think that's the thing we should be asking each other. Right. What, what really is behind what you're doing? And, and think about that. Is that true to who you are? You know, now, what is, I the, think what is one exercise that somebody can do to you know, introspect, to understand you know, what really motivates, you know, what he himself. Hmm. You know, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know, because I'm asking myself now what motivates me, and I think I know. I mean, I uh, curiosity, that's an easy answer, but I don't know if it's the answer for me. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know a good way of, but just to stop and think about it. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble as a kid if I realized that, you know, just wanting more money and that's the total motivation isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's not a good enough reason for doing something or taking a path or just wanting to be famous isn't a good reason, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's what our culture really values and... Uh, but that's not a good enough reason. It, it, they're not really um, core. They're not things that um, that your soul is crawl, crying out to do. Right, right. right. How are you introspecting these days? What is your uh, what is your ritual? Are you writing? Are you meditating? I mean, you are uh, meditating, uh-huh. but what I'm saying is, how are you talking to yourself, introspecting what yeah. motivates you? Yeah, very good question. Is that a Tim Ferriss' question? No, this is, this is follow-up. <laughs> I, I, I think the, uh, that's a good one. Um, how am I... Um, how are you doing in, it right now, like in your life to, at this stage? Introspecting to find out my motivation. Right, at this stage, you yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just started thinking about it. Okay. Um, there was a kid on a podcast I listened to that my wife turned me on to. Who's that? And he, I say a kid, he's a young guy <laughs> out of out of Harvard. He's now a professor at Harvard. Sure. Uh, and he wrote a book called Dark Horse. Okay. And it's all about, um, uh, all about this, finding your motivation and the people that mm. are truly happy with what they're doing and successful. Um, and that only accounts to about 13% of our population mm. that are, happy and successful (laughs) the rest of us either are just tolerating our jobs or absolutely hate our jobs right no completely (laughs) so but anyway um he's talking a lot about that we need to start doing that in early education and it really struck a chord with me here i am at 77 thinking Okay, let me start thinking about what I should have thought about when I was 10. Well, uh, so I think uh, I just dug up uh, his name, Todd Rose. Yeah, first name is Todd. Yeah, Todd Rose. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, for people who uh, are he listening. He was on, Dax, Shep- Dax Shepard had him on, if you want to listen to his podcast. Okay, Dax Shepard. Is- Dax Shepard does his podcast with, um, he's an actor, married to another actress so he's sort of well known that way yeah but he, he has his podcast called armchair expert okay and it's long form so you might enjoy it <laughs> sure any other podcast that you listen to 
Uh, not really. Okay. You know, I was listening to Tim Ferriss. I listened to a little bit of Joe Rogan. Yeah. Um, but not, not, not really. Okay. I, I, I'm not a big connoisseur of podcasts, but I, I do like the form. I mean, yeah. it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So if you could go back in your career or life and change one decision, what would that be? One decision. Yep. Yeah. I, th I think it would be, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, um, uh, because, you know, one thing leads to another so often. And, but I would say I would definitely go back and, as we just said, really try to understand my motivations and have somebody helping me that would say, this is a dead end. This could be a dead end. Yeah. You need more than mm -hmm. this. Yeah. You need more than just needing to make more money. Yep. You need um, something. I, if I had somebody around me at that time to advise me. Yep. But, you know, so many people, you know, parents will discourage their child from the art that they're in love with, mm. mainly because you'll never be able to support yourself with this. Right, right, right. And, um, uh, I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake because, um, whatever you're in love with and passionate about is going to take you somewhere, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so any particular quote that you follow? Coach? Uh, quote, a quote. Um, oh, a code. Uh, or let me twist this a little bit. So if you have a giant, if you have a giant billboard such that you could display a great message or a mm. quote for everyone to follow, oh. right? <laughs> of course, not about your company or your podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. What would you like to tell people? Mm-hmm. Hmm. hmm. I mean, this would be love yourself. Um, I think all health comes from that. And it's a very deep one. It's, it's like not an easy one mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to really successfully accomplish. Hmm. But it's very trite and it's very... Um, cliche in a way, but I think it's, I think it's one of the, it's maybe because I've had a difficulty doing that in my life. Right. And, but, and uh, <clears throat> but I think, um, uh, uh, I talk to so many dentists, right? I mean, my friends are dentists. Most of them are dentists and, you yeah. know, <clears throat> most, you know, I don't want to say all of them or most of them. Uh, I cannot say anything about them, what they think, but many of them actually are annoyed of dentistry. 
annoyed. Yeah. They, they don't they don't they, like it. Yeah, they don't like it. They just don't want to do it. They're just doing it because they spend you know, four years, five years, six years out of in, in dentistry. Uh, mm-hmm. They made a living out of it. Uh, it's respectful, you know, people, you know, mm. uh, are, yep. respect them. Um, but but they're miserable in a way. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think, so I think your, your, uh, your giant billboard message that love yourself and, you know, follow that, what you really want to do. Uh, it'll take you somewhere. It could be, uh, it could be good for everybody. Uh, and especially for the dental population, you know, if you don't really like it, just just leave it and just go to the next step. Go to photography, you know, go to marketing, mm-hmm. go to mm-hmm. business, go to movie making and whatnot. Yeah. Right. So I think yeah. uh, I think uh, that's a good message for uh, uh, for the population, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um, to be connected to your work is very important, um, and to, and to have meaning and purpose in it. Right. I think it has to bring you some meaning and purpose. Uh, that um, either just for the love of it, or especially if you can um, create your own meaning around that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, uh, thanks a lot. Lot about your time. Would you like to get a really small email a couple times a month to see what hashtag POD is up to? What are we reading? What are we listening to? What are we doing? What's stupid, funny, entertaining, and some weird stuff that we gotten ourselves into? Then go to podcastsofdentistry.com slash extra. E-X-T-R-A. That's right. Podcastsofdentistry.com slash extra. And you will get a really small email from us to give you that little extra kick and keep you busy exploring the world we travel. You can also find us on Facebook at podcastsofdentistry.com slash Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hashtag POD. And I'll see you inside. <laughs>